everyone. Welcome back to The Living World. My name is Julia, and I am re-recording this session because there was a technological issue. Now, for those of you who tuned in, you heard my live broadcast back on Monday. However, the system that Star uses to record the broadcast, it had some kind of glitch and didn't record that live session, so I am re-recording episode 17 of The Living World, so that you can all listen back to it on my social media pages. So, apologies for the delay, and I hope you enjoy this episode of The Living World. So, the school that I will be talking about this week is Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology. This is abbreviated as OIST, so O-I-S-T, and this is a school in, you guessed it, Japan. Now, I've never been to Japan. Uh, I'd like to go to see the cherry blossoms and probably Mount Fuji. And they also have some pretty like forests in Japan that I've seen. So that would be really cool as well. Uh, though I think my sister and my mom would would like Japan more because they like sushi. And sushi is a big thing over there. And I don't like that as much. But that would be real fun to go and visit. So for any of you who might have visited uh, this university, let me know how it is. Seems like a pretty cool place. And they also have a really cool looking graduate school. So for those of you who are interested in doing potential graduate work in Japan, take a look at OIST. Anyways, uh, the first study from there that I'll be talking about relates to coral. And this study was published on uh, April 26th of last year, and it looks specifically at a coral species called Acropora tenuis. Now, I'm just going to cover some basic information about corals for those of you who aren't really familiar with them or just haven't, you know, had a had a class on coral yet. You know, who knows? Who knows? Though, if there are any people who are like marine biology um, <laughs> nerds, you can let me know if I'm getting any of this wrong. You might know more about coral than I do. Anyways, coral are invertebrates. This means they have no backbones, so they are living invertebrate organisms, and they're actually kind of related to jellyfish, which is cool. And individually, corals are known as coral polyps, and these individual polyps can grow together to form colonies. Now, a coral colony can form if a polyp lands on the sea floor. And if the singular polyp lands on the sea floor, then this coral colony can begin to grow. And corals have hard limestone skeletons at the base of their bodies. So this makes up most of their body structure and why they form such hard underwater structures. Now, as we know, most corals are pretty colorful, like the ones that you see uh, at the equator, the tropical corals, the warm water corals. I know there are cold water corals, but they're not as pretty, personally. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the tropical corals are better, in my opinion. And corals get their color specifically from a symbiotic relationship that they have with algae. Now, this specific species of algae is called zoozanthellae algae. Now, it's a bit of a mouthful, but these algae are really important for the coral because they are involved in a symbiotic relationship with the coral polyp 
and the overall coral colony. Now, how this relationship works for the coral and the algae is that the coral hosts these zooxanthellae algae in a symbiotic relationship. And how this works is the coral provide a uh, source of food uh, for the algae and a source of protection. So these algae are protected from larger predators. And the issue with this is it's all great and good that coral and algae have this awesome symbiotic relationship. However, if the temperatures in the ocean get too warm for a particular coral species, now this probably varies by species of coral, but if it gets too warm for a particular coral, this can lead to the coral becoming stressed. And the issue with stress coral is stress coral can, if it's at this point long enough in its life, it can expel its symbiotic algae friends. Now, this isn't good, and I'm sure you all have probably heard about this, but if a coral polyp has no algae within it for its symbiotic relationship for too long of a period of time, then the coral can become bleached. So if you've all probably heard of coral bleaching, <laughs> I definitely have. It's a big thing going on right now. And coral bleaching is when these corals lose their symbiotic algae and they become white and discolored. Now, if this goes on long enough, the coral can die. And this has been happening, as we all know, due to climate change. Because increased CO2 in the atmosphere is increasing the rate of ocean acidification. And the warming atmosphere is also warming the ocean. So you have a more acidic ocean, which stresses corals if they can't live in that specific ocean water pH. And a warmer ocean also stresses, stresses them and can lead to them rejecting their symbiotic algae partners. Now, how algae help coral specifically is corals eat the byproducts that are produced by their algae symbionts. And what I didn't know is that corals actually have venomous tentacles that they can use to basically like stab their food with. Uh, so yeah, you might not want to go touching every coral you see just for one, the safety of the coral. Two, uh, you don't want to get potentially stabbed by a venomous coral. So yeah, keep that in mind when the next time you are uh, snorkeling or scuba diving, the coral you see might have a venomous tentacle with which it could poke you. And, and you could potentially get poisoned, not by a snake, but by a coral, which is crazy. So yeah, besides having a symbiotic relationship, some coral can be venomous. Woo! And why corals are so important is they support about 25% of all marine life in the ocean. So 25% of all the organisms that live in the ocean live in and around and rely on coral reefs. However, coral reefs aren't that abundant in the ocean. They cover about 1% of the seafloor, which is nuts. And this 1% of the seafloor supports one-fourth of all life in the ocean and the marine world on Earth. So corals are really important in this regard because they provide such a vital service for the livelihood and survival of marine life on Earth. And of course, if you guys are interested, I actually worked on 
a project relating to corals this past summer. I was a part of the 2021 St. Andrews iGEM team, and iGEM stands for International uh, Genetically Engineered Machine, and this is a global university-level competition involving different teams from different schools across uh, basically all areas. You've got undergrads, you've got graduate students, master's students, and you also have a few high school teams. Now, what makes this competition cool and what makes it relevant is that that it involves synthetic biology. And synthetic biology is using genes from other organisms and putting them into um, what's called a chassis, which is your uh, normally a bacterium. So for the St. Andrews project this past year, we actually worked with E. coli and we use these E. coli to help produce in the lab an environmentally friendly sunscreen to protect coral reefs. And of course, we didn't get as far as we expected on our project, so just a dose of realism there if you're interested in doing an internship and maybe scientific research that not everything you think will happen will happen. See, I went into the iGEM thinking, oh, we'll, we'll get our whole system done and we'll make a sunscreen to protect the coral. And we got about one gene partially expressed out of four. And that was only half of the system. So yeah, just a fair warning there. Um, internships are great, but scientific research and work takes ages. So that was a really fun project. And if any of you guys are interested in potentially being a part of the St. Andrews iGEM team, you can hit me up. Uh, we have just closed applications for this uh, 2022 team, but hey, next year, any of you guys are interested, you can come and ask me all about iGEM and potentially get on the team yourself. And yeah, so our project was pretty cool and we focus on coral reefs, which is great because this study focuses on coral reefs. Now, I mentioned that this OIST study focused specifically on a coral species called Acropora tenuis. Now, Acropora tenuis is native to the Indo-Pacific Ocean region. So this includes areas such as Fiji, the Solomon Islands, and the Great Barrier Reef. So around that general area of Australia, Indonesia, and uh, maybe off towards India a bit as well. And Acropora tenuis is a type of staghorn coral. So this is a specific type of coral that, as you guessed it, called staghorn coral. And these types of corals grow in subtidal and intertidal reef zones. So this can range from depths of down to 20 feet. And these coral are actually pretty colorful. They can have colors such as pink and purple and orange. So they're really pretty. And if you're curious, you can take a look at them on the internet. And this species of coral is estimated to be about 3.5 million years old. And Acropora tenuis are also known as SPS corals. And this stands for small polyp stony corals. And 
why they are referred to SP why they why they are referred to as SPS corals is because they form stone-like calcium carbonate structures that make up the backbone of these coral reef species. And corals of the Pora genus, so Acropora is part of the Pora genus, these are all different types of small polyp stony corals, SPS corals. And what differentiates them and why they are referred to as this is because they have small size coral polyps, but large skeletons. And there's also other types of corals, such as LPS corals, and you guessed it, this stands for large polyp stony corals. So these are corals which might grow in deeper waters, and they have large polyps compared to smaller polyps of SPS corals. And what's also interesting about the Acropora genus of corals is they are often used to reconstruct past sea levels. So if any of you are interested in this topic, I actually learned a bit about it uh, last year when I was taking ES-1001. And this is actually a practical covered in ES-1001. So if there are any first-year earth science students listening right now, you got this to look forward to. It's a, It was a really cool practical, and uh, so we were looking at different coral species and how they could be used to date and track the change in the past sea levels because based on where these coral species grow they can be used to estimate a paleo climate for the sea level which is really cool and specifically if you want to talk to someone about this and you're really interested in this uh, biology earth science topic you can talk to dr nicola allison who leads this uh, ES-1001 practical with the coral because she works directly with corals and looking at past sea levels. So if any of you are curious, talk to her. And I'll also be uh, posting a link to a research article about using corals and tracking past sea levels. So for any of you who do not have it in you to write an email to a staff member and ask specifically more about this area with corals, you can read a paper about it. Of course, if you have time. Now, I, I know I'm, I'm quite busy with all my work, but for those of you, if you have a Saturday where you're just kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do, uh, go ahead and maybe read about some corals and climate. Anyways, this study with Acropora tenuis, as I mentioned, was published on April 26th of last year. So it's a few months old, almost a year old now, which is crazy. And this study involved researchers from OIST, specifically from their graduate school. It also involved researchers from Kochi University, which is another school in Japan. And they looked at, as I mentioned, Acropora tenuis. Now Acropora tenuis, um, we know now that they are large stony corals with large skeletons and small polyps. But what's important about them is they are fast growing. Now, a fast growing large skeleton coral is really important for building the backbones of reef communities because these provide the first initial stepping stone of an overall coral reef and then other species of coral can come and grow. 
So these corals are really important in the role of developing coral reefs. And these researchers were like, okay, cool. Now, can we grow these corals in a lab? And there hasn't been much success with this growing actual coral larvae in the lab. So what these researchers did is they took a look specifically at Acropora tenuis and tried to grow these coral species in the lab. Now, most people, when they do this, uh, use adult coral, I, I believe. They might use other types, but the difficulty with using adult uh, corals to study in the lab is that they're a lot harder to cultivate. And this is because they're adult corals. So as I mentioned, corals form symbiotic relationships with algae. And this relationship provides the coral its color and secondary nutrients. So these algae are needed to keep the coral alive. And if you have an adult coral, this coral is larger, it's more developed, it needs more food, more energy, so more algae. So this is why adult corals can be harder to grow and harder to manipulate in the lab. So these researchers instead decided to look at growing larval coral cells. Now larval coral cells are interesting because A, they're younger, but B, they have a quicker division rate. So a quicker rate of cell division. So what does this mean for this specific study set of coral cells? This means that they have a less likely chance of being colonized by as many algae because each individual coral cell devel uh, develops and divides quicker. So, and these are also younger, so they're not as complicated to grow as adult coral. Now, okay, these researchers, these researchers were like, great, how do we grow these? Uh, so what they did was they isolated sperm and egg cells from current laboratory coral spe specimens and used these to grow up larval coral cells. Now, the research wasn't without issue. They did run into a few problems trying to culture these Acropora tenuous larvae. And the main issue was is they kept dying when they were being grown in petri dishes. Now, okay, these researchers, are, these researchers were like, okay, we don't want our coral to die. We want it to keep growing. So they found out eventually down the road that if you added this specific protease called plasmin right at the beginning of the cell culturing of these larvae, it led to successful growth of these Acropora tenuous coral polyps, which is great. Now, uh... For those of you who are curious, what is plasmin? I mentioned plasmin is a protease, and a protease is an enzyme that catalyzes the breakdown of protein chains. Now, uh, catalyzing means speeding up of chemical reactions, as that is the main role of an enzyme. It speeds up the role, the rate of a chemical reaction by lowering the activation energy and allowing a chemical reaction that might happen naturally go a lot quicker with the presence of this enzyme. So plasmin uh, is a type of protease, and it breaks down polypeptides. And this uh, enzyme helped with growing the coral, which was great. 
And after these researchers figured out this problem and added plasmin to help grow their core polyps, they were able to eventually grow eight different types of coral. Now, they didn't get all of these corals successfully to adulthood, but they did get seven out of eight of the grown species to grow into adult coral, which is great. And uh, what these researchers also found is that some of these fully grown adult coral cells started to resemble uh, these certain cells called endodermal cells. Now, endodermal cells in coral are specific cells that form about a day after a coral egg is fertilized. And these are important to study in coral because they are the specific cell type in coral that interact with the symbiotic algae. So these corals specifically are involved in the symbiotic relationships between the coral and the algae. Now this is a really big finding because as most researchers have only really studied adult coral, they haven't been able to look at the initial reactions of how coral associate and form their symbiotic relationships with algae. So this is a really big finding and really cool that these researchers were able to figure out a way to grow these larval acroporotenuous coral polyps and develop them into adults, which is really cool. And it's also great because corals are at the center of marine climate change. So knowing more about how they form their relationships with the algae, their, symbi their symbiotic algae is really important because if we know more about how they live and survive, we can apply this to studying the effects of climate change and what we can do to also help corals more in the future. And we can use these interactions of developing larval coral and algae to understand how coral uh, responds to stress. This is really important as climate change is a big stressor, a big stressful event for coral right now. And this study was the first time that any of these kinds of events were seen on the cellular level. So this is the first time that anyone has been able to see the development and the growth of coral and their interactions with algae, which is great. And these researchers also, uh, as an addition, found that they could freeze these coral cells in liquid nitrogen. So this is great because freezing cells in liquid nitrogen basically prolongs their life. So you can keep them in liquid nitrogen basically indefinitely because liquid nitrogen is really cold. I think it's like negative 283 Celsius or something like that, but it's really cold and really cool that not only you can study the individual interactions of coral with algae, but these researchers found that you can freeze these coral cells. So it's a great upcoming area for coral research. And these uh, OIST researchers have more plans in the future, of course, and one of their main goals is to keep studying how to better preserve and freeze these coral cells in liquid nitrogen and continue to cultivate and grow other coral cell lines to continue to study their interactions with these symbiotic algae. So, pretty cool study. I mean, all about coral. So, again, for you coral buffs out there, uh, you can take a look at the study in more detail and learn more about 
the cool developments of growing larval coral in the lab. Now, similarly, uh, this next study from uh, Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology is about another type of marine organism. Now, this is not a coral, um, but it is a type of squid. So, squid, woo, calamari, another kind of food that I don't like. Um, seafood, I'm not a huge fan of seafood, but I like salmon okay. Salmon and fish and chips, that, that's about my limit. But, again, for those of you who like squid, uh, cool. You guys are cool. You guys are much more adventurous in your taste than I am. Anyways, this second OIS study looked at squid. Specifically, it looked at the bobtail squid and bottletail squid. Now, I'm going to just cover some brief information about these types of squid because they're really, really cool animals and they're really quite cute. Now, the bobtail squid is found in most of the oceans of the world. This includes the Atlantic, Pacific, and the Mediterranean oceans, or the Mediterranean Sea. And the bottletail squid is native only to the Indo-Pacific Ocean region. Now, these are both types of squid, and squid are cephalopods, so both the bottletail and bobtail squid are cephalopods. Now, other animals that belong to the cephalopod uh, biological group include the octopus, the cuttlefish, and the nautilus. Now, cuttlefish are pretty cute. Noctilus, nautiluses are really, really old organisms that have been around for a while, and octopi, um, we all know what they look like. They got eight arms, and they're cool. Now, these bobtail and bottletail squid, as I mentioned, are really cute. Now, why are they really cute? They're really small, and small animals are cute, and they kind of look like baby squids because they're that small. Now, these squids have a size ranging from two to three inches long in total, so that's 6.5 to 9 centimeters for those of you who are not familiar with uh, U.S. measurement units. <laughs> and they have a diet including various crustaceans, including shrimp, and they don't live very long. They only live about three to ten months, so they have a short lifespan, and as such, with a short lifespan, these squid can reproduce in as little as two months after they hatch, which is pretty nuts. Imagine being born, and then in two months, you can have a kid. So, like, if that was a human, you'd be born as a child, as a, as a baby, as a newborn, and then in two months, when you're still a two-month-old, you could potentially have children. Like, that would be crazy if that was applicable to humans. But no, we have a different lifespan. And uh, these squid... They hunt nocturnally, and to do this, they bury themselves in the sand. And they use this unique hunting method associated with, um, along with burying themselves in the sand, they use camouflage. Now, this camouflage is a really cool method, and it involves another type of um, symbiotic relationship with bacteria. So these bobtail and bottletail squid use specifically um, a bioluminescent species of bacteria called Vibrio fisheri. And uh, these bioluminescent bacteria help the squid hunt. Now, 
I will get to the why in a second, but how the bacteria benefit from this relationship is they get their food and sugar sources from the squid, and in return, the squid uh, are able to use the blue-green light that is produced by these bioluminescent bacteria to aid their camouflage. So these squid use light to camouflage, but how? As I mentioned, the light produced by Vibrio fisheri is blue and green. How do these squid utilize this light from the bacteria to camouflage and hunt? They have a specialized organ on their bodies to help with this. Now this is referred to as the light organ, so inventive name, I know, light organ. Woo, it sounds like a musical instrument. And this light organ, <laughs> well, not an instrument, is really helpful for the squid. As I said, it's involved in their camouflage, and it's located in the middle of the squid's mantle. Now, the mantle on a squid is the top part of the squid, so this is its head. And no, it's not the wooden mantle above your fireplace. <laughs> it's a whole different thing. It's a squid, squid's head. And the light organ is housed in this area. And the Vibrio fisheri bacteria live inside this organ and within the pores, the outer pores of the squid's mantle. So this tiny bobtail and bottletail squid has these bacteria living in its skin and living within this light organ to help it camouflage. And both the bobtail and bottletail squid have this ability. And how this process works. As I mentioned, the, the Vibrio fisheri bioluminescent bacteria live within the light organ and the pores of these squid. Now, how do the squid get these bacteria into their skin and into this light organ? These bacteria are specifically drawn in to the pores and the internal light organ of the squid because it vents in lots of seawater, which contains these bacteria in it. And to get these bacteria into not only its pores, but into the light organ, the light organ has a lot of mucus that's produced within it, and this allows concentration of the Vibrio fisheri bacteria into one place, as mucus concentrates things in your body, as your nose has mucus and it concentrates your immune cells and acts as a preventative barrier for infection. In squid, the light organ uses mucus to concentrate bioluminescent bacteria into one small space for a stronger, more efficient effect of bioluminescence. So, using this light organ and its skin, these squid uh, are able to camouflage. Now, not only does this uh, species of squid, the bobtail and the bottletail squid, use the light organ to maintain and utilize camouflage. These squid also have a way of limiting the light that is released by these bioluminescent bacteria by use of the pores on their skin. And what is specifically used here is these squid have um, a type of, I think it's a muscle or something similar that surrounds their pores, and this is called diverticula. And this diverticula 
muscle contracting agent thing allows um, control over which light is reflected out and it controls how much of the light from the bacteria is reflected out. So these are controlled by the ink sac of the squid. So this is separate from the light organ. This ink sac controls the diverticula, which control the opening sizes in the pores of the squid on its mantle to basically uh, adjust how much light is um, shown and going out into the environment from all these bacteria. So it's really cool. And it's a bit complicated, so I hope I explained it to the, my, to the best of my ability. But if you are curious, you can go and look up this process online. And this process is great and all, but bacteria, of course, over time, do die. So what these squid have to do every now and then is they need to replenish their supply of Vibrio fisheri bacteria. And this actually occurs every day in the evening, so these bobtail and bottletail squid will actually get rid of about 70 to 90% of their internal Vibrio fisheri amount in their bodies and return it back into the seawater. And after they do this, they'll take in new water into their uh, bodies, some kind of filtration process, I guess, and they replenish the Vibrio fisheri bacteria that they expelled from their light organ and their pores. So now they have new bacteria that can be redistributed into their mantle pores by the light organ. And the light that comes off from these bacteria is managed by the diverticuli on their skin, which is controlled by the ink sac. So hopefully that makes sense. It's a really cool process and these squid are super cute. And because of all this light that they release from the Vibrio fisheri, they have a bunch of different colors. So their camouflage process is really cool. It's so cool that the U.S. Air Force is actually has actually done some research on this and looked at how their camouflage process works for the bobtail and bottletail squid. And there's actually some ideas for future plans in the future of using this to help further camouflage planes. So if you're interested in um, plane development and potentially uh, being a spy and you're also interested in biology and squids, you can go take a look at this and how squids and nature and adaptations and evolution in nature are being used by us once again to help camouflage our planes. So pretty cool. And I'll now cover more on what these researchers from OIST looked at. So this study, uh, again, I mentioned focused on the bobtail and the bottletail squid. It was published on June 29th last year, so not too far ago. And it involved researchers from OIST and also from the National University of Ireland in Galway, the University of Vienna, and University College London in London. And what these researchers were doing is they looked at the genomes of these various species of bobtail and bottletail squid to see how they may have evolved and eventually evolutionarily diverged from each other 
back in the past. Now, currently, there are 68 known species of bobtail squid and five known species of bottletail squid. And these researchers looked at 32 species in total, including bobtail and bottletail squid, so 32 species in all. And what they did to analyze these animals' genomes is they used a technique called genome skipping. And genome skipping is where it's a type of genome sequencing that analyzes small parts of an animal's DNA. And these researchers specifically wanted to look at the evolutionary relationships between these two similar squid species, so the bottletail and the bobtail squid. And what these researchers found through this genome skipping, uh, genome sequencing, is they found that the bobtail and the bottletail squid actually diversified from each other into their numerous families about 66 million years ago. So, what else occurred 66 million years ago that we all have probably heard about? The extinction of the dinosaurs. This was caused by the KT mass extinction, which was a big event in Earth history, as I learned in my Earth history class. And this was the end of the Cretaceous period, and it was likely caused by, I believe, uh, volcanic events and a meteorite impact. And it killed off 75% of all life on Earth. But luckily, these squid survived. And the environment was so stressed out that these squid evolved from each other. Ooh. And there was also another further evolutionary division that these researchers found through their genome sequencing. They found that about 50 million years ago, so 16 million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs, these squid evolved from each other once again. Now, why? Why did this happen? This was due to another geological event due to plate tectonics. 50 million years ago was the closure of the Tethys Sea. Now, closure of an ocean is a big thing because you've got two species living in an ocean. If the ocean closes in the middle of these two species, they are now separate from each other. And this is what happened to the squid. They got separated, these, these squid species, and this led to the further evolution and development of the specific Indo-Pacific and Mediterranean slash Atlantic species of the bobtail squid. So, really cool. And also what these researchers found is that two species actually lost their light organ. So over the course of evolution, two bobtail slash bottletail squid species lost their light organ due to all these events. And this study was, again, really helpful and shows the power of genome sequencing to be able to track back to 66 million years using just some technology to look at the sequence of DNA to figure out how these squid evolved from each other. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And hey, you guys got to learn a bit about Earth history and extinction, mass extinction events. I mean, that's something. <laughs> so hope y'all enjoyed that little earth science tangent again. And hearing about some really cute squid. They're super cute. And 
I'll be moving on now to my last article topic that I want to cover. It also involves another animal, but it's not a marine animal. This is a terrestrial animal, and it is specifically the trap jaw ant. So trap jaw ants, they are ants, but they're special because they have a trap jaw. It's not a trap door, it's a trap jaw. So it's their jaw that is special. And these are a specific species of ant. They live in Central and South America, but uh, they've also been seen to be migrating more northwards and have been seen colonizing parts of the southern U.S. So for those of you who live in the southern U.S., watch out potentially for trapjaw ants. They will come for you. <laughs> and trapjaw ants, all their individual species, belong to the genus Odontomachus. An apology, any um, entomology nerds, if I mispronounce that, but that is a lengthy genus name. And these ants live in colonies that include a queen and female worker ants. And what makes them really interesting to study is they actually have the fastest closing jaw of any known animal. So no, it's not a crocodile. It's not a lion. It's not your cat. It's not your fish. It's trap jaw ants. And as I mentioned, they've got the fastest closing jaw. And the jaw on an ant can also be referred to as its mandible. So they've got these giant mandible jaws, mandibles. And why they close so quickly is due to their morphology. Now, the jaws of the trap jaw ant are interesting because they can open to almost 180 degrees. So they go from being closed together to opening wider and wider and wider to eventually hit almost 180 degrees. So almost completely uh, perpendicular to their resting position, which is crazy. And this helps and allows them to have really quick closing jaws. Now, trap jaw ants their jaws can close at speeds between 78 and 145 miles per hour. So you've got these ants with jaws that can close between 78 and 145 miles per hour. That's pretty crazy. Like, this tiny ant, like, let's hope he doesn't bite you. He could bite you with a jaw that could go almost like 150 miles per hour. I mean, that would hurt. I don't want that little ant to bite me. I mean, I don't want an ant to bite me in general, but that would particularly hurt. Now, the use of this jaw closing mechanism isn't what you'd think it would be for. These trap jaw ants actually primarily use their jaws to jump. Like to jump, like like actually jump. It's pretty crazy. And how this process works for them is they open their jaws as wide as possible, so about 180 degrees, and you guessed it, they shut them really quickly. And this acts as a sort of quick action hinge for the ants. So they open their jaws and they shut them really quickly and they're able to jump. So pretty cool. And why do they do this? It gives them a way to avoid predators. And it's also been used um, sometimes to help them uh, ambush their prey. So not only can you jump, 
but you can jump and then go hunt your food as this tiny ant. And okay, they jump, but how high can these trapjaw ants actually go with their jaws? Now I think, oh, you know, like they're going to be up in the air for like a second and they're not going to go that high. But no, it's, it's actually the reverse. These ants can jump up to 3.3 inches into the air. This is 8.3 centimeters. And this is the equivalent of a person who's five foot six. So like me, I'm five foot and a half. Uh, I'm not sure what that is in centimeters, so apologies. But that's the equivalent of me jumping 44 feet. So if these ants were like enlarged somehow with like a um, magical spell and they became big mutant ants, I wouldn't want them coming at me because they can jump 44 feet in the air if they were like six feet long. Like that's crazy. Like please don't send these giant ants at me. Please don't make them any bigger than they are because I feel like that would freak me out with their giant jaws. And for any of you who have read the Twilight book series, this reminds me also a bit of that. Um, the whole thing is, in the last book, the main character gets turned into a vampire. And one of the perks of being a vampire is you can jump really high. So, you, I, I wonder who would win. If you had a race between the trapjaw ant, who was enlarged to be six feet long, or six feet tall... And he jumped 44 feet. How high could the vampire jump from Twilight in relation? So who would win in a jumping contest? A trapjaw ant or a vampire? I don't know. But that would be a really cool test that will never happen. But it would be really sick. The real question is though. Can trapjaw ants jump higher than jumping spiders? Because I know they exist as well. I, I would love the answer to that question. So if any of you <laughs> would let me know, that would be great. Or I might just, you know, like look it up later and let you know in the next episode. A reason for you to come back. Can trapjaw ants jump higher than jumping spiders? Yes or no? True or false? So, hey, maybe a reason to come back and listen to me next week. And, okay, these trapjaw ants can jump. And their jaws are, they play a big role in this. So, clearly, of course, researchers noticed this. And now... The mechanisms behind how the trap jaw ant's jaw actually works is has grown to become a ongoing field of research. So it's become a really important research area for people nowadays, which is great. And this study um, that I'm going to mention, of course, it looked at trap jaw ants and it involved researchers from OIST, the University of Illinois, the University of Utah, Yale, and the California Academy of Sciences, which are all in the U.S., and the study was published on March 3rd of last year, so almost a year ago, which is pretty crazy. And what these researchers were looking at is they wanted to figure out specifically how the hinge-like mechanism of the jaw of the trap jaw ants developed. So how did this mechanism evolve? How did these ants evolve this mechanism to jump, to use their mouths to jump? That's what they were curious about. And what these researchers did is they analyzed specific DNA sequences from ants in the Stromagynus genus. So this genus involves current-day trapjaw ants. And the Stromagynus genus contains over 900 species of ants. 
And there's lots of really closely related species in this genus. It includes ones that do and don't have trap jaws. So hence the reason these researchers looked at this genus, they were like, okay, you've got these ants that are all related to each other, but some of them have a trap jaw and some of them don't. Now, why is that? So what these researchers did is, you guessed it, they extracted DNA from these specific Stromagynus genus ants. Now, as I mentioned, there's over 900 species of ants in this genus. These researchers looked at DNA from 470 species of these ants. And the ones that they looked at were ants that were the modern day trap jaw ants. And they also looked at ants that had more primitive jaws that might be uh, precursors to the modern day trap jaw ant. So they looked at the DNA sequences of the specific ant species to look and see how the trap jaw mechanism evolved. And how did they do this? So one, they made up a phylogenetic tree, and a phylogenetic tree tracks the relatedness of each individual species back through time. So you can go and check and see how related these different ant species are. It can also be applied to humans and the different past species of humans. These researchers also used what's called a micro-CT, and a CT is CAT scan, and they used this micro-CT technology to uh, analyze the jaw structure of these different ants. Now, why micro-C was important for this study is Micro-CT can be used to create 3D models of things. So it's used commonly a lot to scan um, bones. And I actually did a practical for this in BL1102 last year, where we looked at um, different bones and skulls of these animals that had been analyzed via CAT scan. So if you guys are curious in this, um, a lot of our... um, Models that we looked at for the practical were from the University of Edinburgh, and they might have some skulls or things in the Wardlaw Museum on the scores. So if you guys are interested in looking at uh, skulls and evolution and morphology of different animals, you can take a look there. And these researchers used micro-CT. They created 3D models of these ants to help better study them. And what they found through their DNA sequencing, uh, studying using phylogenetic trees and using micro-CT, was that they found that the overall trap jaw mechanism had evolved about 7 to 10 uh, separate times over the course of um, past history. So they found that uh, there was really only one evolutionary change that was really like fundamental in the evolution of the trap jaw. So I mentioned that there were seven to 10 evolutions of this jaw over history. So you've got seven to 10 instances where there was specific evolution. Now of these seven to 10 instances, there was one that was the most important. Now this one most important evolutionary change is what led to the later development of the trap jaw. And these secondary Uh, evolutionary changes that occurred were more of modifications to the size and the girth and the length of these uh, trap jaws on the ants. So this, this hadn't been found before. So this was a really important find because before this study was published, researchers thought that 
um, that the shape and the form of the jaws had diverged and formed separately from the function of the trap jaw. But this study showed that that these things developed together. So both shape and function evolved together instead of separately. And that they also found, these researchers found, that there were many different intermediate forms of evolution of this trap jaw mechanism. So this study is really great in that regard because it shows the real importance of going back and looking at DNA sequences and looking at things with better, improving technology and the, por- and the importance of that and going back and just really looking. So now we know that, A, trap jaw ants have really cool jaws and they had one main evolutionary event and the rest were just modifying the size of this jaw. So the researchers were really pleased with this and I took a look and their future plans right now involve looking more specifically at the genetic and the molecular info within the ant's DNA to further decipher the changes between these different trap jaw ants because they have just scratched the surface with this now and are really excited of getting on with it and getting into more detail about what has occurred. So yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to uh, the research from the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology. I've enjoyed sharing it with you. And now we know more about coral, squids, and trap jaw ants. Yay! Anyways, I hope you guys are able to tune in next week for episode 18 of The Living World. But I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. And I look forward to seeing you all next week and hope you have a good rest of your day.